Welcome back to the Time for Heroes podcast. This week's guest is NME journalist Anthony Thornton. Anthony worked with NME initially, NME.com. Anthony's followed the Libertines the majority of their career. In between him and Roger Sargent, they wrote a book called Bound Together, the definitive story of the Libertines. We talked about that. We talked about his early life growing up, how he got into journalism, and we spoke about what came after the Libertines. Also at the end, Anthony picked his four heroes to come for a dinner party. Hope you all enjoy the podcast. I'll be back again soon with another one. Thanks. Thanks very much, Anthony Thornton, um, for coming on the podcast. If people aren't aware of you, you're probably most famous for writing the Libertines book, Bound Together. Uh, you're also a journalist that's worked for the NME, as well as lots of other different publications, uh, which we'll touch on during the interview. But I always like to kind of start off at the beginning, where you grew up, what life is like, school life, stuff like that. So if you just want to start off with that, let us know what, what life is like then. Yeah, well, um, I had uh, one of those, I don't know, uh, weird kind of lives where I, I was born in Cardiff uh, in Wales. My mum and dad are both Welsh, uh, but we moved around loads as I was growing up. So I lived in P- uh, Bristol, Peterborough, Grimsby, and um, just outside Crawley. Uh, uh, where the where is that? Where the is that? Hawley, Hawley. Right. Um, and so... Uh, it was it was a weird it was weird growing up because I I didn't put down any roots in a way but a, a lot of people I know did, mm-hmm. um, but I think that probably gave me a, a little bit of independence and a kind of I mean I think it probably could have gone two ways I could have either been you know very very uh, uh, demure and uh, uh, let life wash over me but in actual fact it did the opposite it kind of gave me a bit of confidence and mm-hmm. um, it meant that um, I kind of felt that I could do things um, just because I had had this experience um, but then uh, the other thing was at school I was kind of um, one of those people who uh, I was, I, I mean, I absolutely loved writing stories. That was kind of that's probably where everything starts. Mm-hmm. I love writing stories. Uh, and I remember writing stories for, uh, when I was like five or six, which were like, you know, like 10 pages long and, and teacher telling me to stop writing now because that's long enough and things like that. Um, so I, I kind of knew I wanted to write. Um, but then I was also good at, you know, uh, sciencey stuff and maths and things like that, which was, uh, so it was kind of s- split for me. I, I kind of like both. And then um, uh, as I was growing up, I, can't, I, I kind of hit that point where it's probably rel- relatively late. I think I, I was probably about 12, 13, where I just started discovering music and like falling head over heels with it. Like I'd never uh, loved anything before. I really, really went nuts for um, the Beatles. Mm-hmm. I went nuts for the Stones and um, basically anything between uh, like kind of 1966, 1970, I just went absolutely mad for. 
Would Gus be due to your parents? Is that the sort of stuff they'd be listening to? <laughs> no, no. I mean, no. hopefully my parents won't be listening to it. But they listened to um, some pretty terrible records. I mean, they had uh, Reader's Digest box sets of like 12 records, mm-hmm. which you can't get anymore, but they are like really, really bad. Um, it's terrible music. And, I, and um, I went back and had a look when I was uh, at university at these records and it, and there was literally nothing on there that I liked at all, apart from Pictures of Matchstick Men by Status Quo, which is just bloody uh-huh. excellent. Um, and uh, The Best of Simon and Garfunkel. That was, that was two <laughs> things I kind of took, took from my parents. Um, and I think that's probably why it was a bit later, because I think it was, because um, obviously we didn't have the internet, but it was also... Um, uh, you know, radio was radio. I didn't, you know, it was background music. And but then I started to get into it, and then um, just met a, a, a group of like-minded people. You know, uh, uh, who who also kind of started obsessing over sixties. And and so when I was, by the time I was seventeen, we were going to record fairs and going to buy records. And with the NME, which obviously was. The, the thing that told us um, yeah. uh, what to listen to and, and arguably how to think as well, you know, because it wasn't just um, music. It was also uh, what books you should read, you know, you know, Andres yeah. Thompson you all came through, through uh, uh, the enemy um, and William Burroughs and all, all of that. So there was a big education there. And, and what's great uh, when you're 16, 17, 18 is like, you will try and read anything. And if anybody says, this is okay, you'll go and dive in. And mm. and that's kind of what happened. So it was, um, uh, you know, it was, you know, all the cliches. It was the Beatles, Stones, the Velvet Underground, Bowie, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, plus, you know, um, Goddard uh, in film. And there's a lots of great in- indie film made in, in the 80s, which was when I hit uh, 17 and um, it was just, it was just a brilliant time for me. Um, uh, people, uh, friends of mine, you know, uh, my, my friend Dominic, my friend Rick, uh, Kerry, um, we all kind of were just feeding into this. And then also going on at the same time was a big comics boom as well. So I was kind of um, Alan Moore, uh, uh, with things like Swamp Thing was really big and that was really driving us and we'd, we'd all read 2000 AD since since um, uh, the late 70s I read 2000 AD since I was 6 mm-hmm. um, and so I, I, kind of, I was kind of like fertile ground you know I was really into yeah. um, finding out about things uh, and so it, it it became from the age of about five or six. I wanted to write. I knew I wanted to write. Well, uh, up to the age of five, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, but that that kind of fell by the wayside. And after after that, it was very much wanting to be a writer. And then um, when I discovered music, and when I discovered um, uh, the enemy, uh, I mean, the, the enemy was this great thing where it kind of made no sense. Like you, you picked it up and it made absolutely no sense. There's a load of people who knew a load of stuff, uh, and it kind of sounded interesting. It was kind of a bit of a club, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then probably after buying about three or four issues, it made it started to make sense. Yeah. And then at the point it started to make sense, it started to sound like the greatest thing you could possibly do. Definitely. Uh, I, I lived my life with NM even I was growing up. And just like I mean, you say, like every, everything that did influence me, the way I dressed, the, the music I listened to, the books, all that, I so totally understand where you're coming from there. And, and it was, I mean, it was the alternative education. I mean, we had, the, like, you know, you know, we don't, we had um, BBC One, Two, ITV, Channel Four, uh, and we have a library. Um, but you know, the library is only good if you've got people telling you what books to take out of the library. And you know, once you've um, exhausted everything you've heard about, the enemy basically took you on this, this ride to new places and, and new ideas. Um, and you know, it was, it was astonishing. It really was. And I, th- I almost think that, that it's kind of position uh, in culture is almost underestimated just not just because of um, um, not just around music but also around ev- everything else mm. and I, I think um, you know and I you know I know uh, the late 80s for a lot of people it had already gone past its golden age you know there's already the, the face um, and uh, and smash hits were which were kind of these two great pillars also talking about music. But for me, you know, it kind of opened lot, lots and lots of doors. And then, um, uh, you know, I was living in Hawley, which is uh, just uh, near Gatwick Airport and near uh, Crawley. And it was kind of, it, it's because it was so close to Gatwick Airport, I think the idea was it almost felt like... Um, at school that you were going to go and work at the airport and if you're going to go and work at the airport yeah. it was kind of like you my know, wife my wife's from Crawley and <laughs> the majority of her family worked at Gatwick airport exactly yeah so that there's almost a kind of sense that you're going to go and work at Gatwick probably so you know um we probably don't need to try too hard you know mm. I don't think education uh was had it uh, was on full throttle at that point um, so I, you know, I wanted to escape. I really wanted to get out of of there. Uh, and uh, reading was it, music was it, and a uh, university was it. And so um, I, I, I got to university, which is brilliant. Um, and then and uh, I, I had this kind of extreme romantic idea about university. I thought it was going to be like everything I read about university in the sixties. So it'd be mm-hmm. like like minded people. And I would be able to, you know, find out about music and philosophy and, uh, you know, literature and talk to lots of people um, and try lots of things and do lots of things. And um, what actually happened was I got there and it seemed to be a load of people just wanted to have jobs, which is a disappointment. I was expecting to, you know, talk about launching magazines and things like that. Um, But... You know, uh, I went to Warwick University uh, and it was great. And I did get to try lots of things. I, I, I um, got to play in bands, which is brilliant. And I got to write. I got, I got to hone my skills as a music journalist um, at the paper there. I got to write comedy and, and I worked on a, on a comedy radio show with a group of people, which was 
uh, loads of fun and extremely stressful because we wrote half an hour of comedy every week. Um, and uh, they all went on to do really well. So um, uh, uh, people like Ben Ward, who now uh, works in Macronin from Simpsons fame. Right. Uh, and Dave Lamb, who uh, is uh, the voice of Come Down With Me. That's right, yeah. Um, <laughs> Dave Lamb had announced my death on radio, which is brilliant. And I wish I had it on tape somewhere because it's very, very, very funny. Um, so that, that was great doing doing that. And then after university, I'd kind of always wanted to work for Enemy, always uh, uh, kind of had this dream. But... Um, I mean, I'd always go, while, weirdly, while being uh, on the outside very confident and very uh, very much knowing my my uh, own thoughts, I was also terrified. And I also never, ever would actually send anything to the enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, and what was... Uh, alarming for me was that there was a guy who's a year above me at university a guy called johnny cigarettes who mm-hmm. actually did go and write for the enemy and not only did he go write for enemy he was a brilliant brilliant writer and he uh for me he was kind of a great great writer of the enemy uh during Britpop. i mean just an astonishingly yeah. brilliant writer and that actually made it worse because he was so brilliant uh, I kind of thought, oh, I'm never, I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to do this. And so after university, um, I went to Birmingham uh-huh. uh, and I played in a band, uh, which was uh, a great, uh, great experience. And we were good and we got very, very close to being signed. We had advances from Mother Records and uh, lots and lots of people came to see us. We, um, the Unfortunately, uh, our lead guitarist, who some of a genius guitarist, um, he he had, he had tinnitus, and so we were going to play a showcase. And he pulled out like two days before the actual showcase, right. which is a, which is just Still tragic. Not, I mean, Dorian yeah. is just a brilliant guitarist, and not only a brilliant guitarist, he introduced me to Brian Eno, uh, which I, I was clearly quite late on and should have been on a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, no, just just great. And what then, was the, what um, was the name of the band? We were called Aphasia. We were called Aphasia. Aphasia. And what um, sort of music we're talking about? So we were we had three guitarists up front, and we were very much um, post kind of My Bloody Valentine. You know, we made we were making yeah. a hell of a racket live, uh, and then. We recorded demos, which uh, were probably were, were kind of quite brit poppy in actual fact, and, and less of that like kind of live sound. So I've got, I've got tapes of it, and it's kind of um, the live stuff is very much in your face, and then the, the demos are a bit um, not quite so uh, abrasive. Right. And what were you um, what were you doing in the band? With? I, was, I was playing guitar and writing songs uh, and. Um, just you know thoroughly enjoying myself and playing uh, you know we're playing gigs probably every every week and it was a great time to play gigs because it was kind of 93 94 yeah and it felt like really exciting and um 
And also I, I launched an arts magazine in Birmingham as well, which covered all, all, all the arts. And I was also writing for the Birmingham Post as well. And uh, so I was learning my trade. And so at the same time as playing in a band, I was also seeing, you know, um, Oasis were playing to 100, 150 people. And I was, and and this is my life. So it was kind of like seeing bands three nights a week, write, writing reviews for the Birmingham Post, and playing in a band, and dreaming of being a music journalist. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it was a pretty great time. Yeah, it was a pretty great time. Sounds amazing. Uh, it, and it was, you know, we kind of saw, um, you know, people like Oasis come through, and we saw, you know, Elastica and Pulp and you know Radiohead and I mean I remember seeing Radiohead and they were touring for my own lung EP mm-hmm. and um it, it was still about creep and they played creep like three songs in and then everybody went to the bar after <laughs> creep and it was just like I was, I've never seen anything like it and then um obviously they, they become a band they are today and I, I imagine there's very few people at a gig who say oh yeah I saw Creep and then I went to the bar because there was nothing interesting mm. after that but it was it was a great time for music it was a great time for live music you know and I, I remember seeing for example the Mannix, Mannix Street Preachers and seeing them touring the Holy Bible which was just an astonishing, astonishing gig uh, at Wolverhampton Civic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, writing the review of it. And um, then seeing them again when they uh, uh, were touring Everything Must Go. And obviously it had been a completely different thing, but, you know, feeling it was just as important. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, I was writing about it for the Birmingham Post, but I still wasn't writing about it for the NME. And that was kind of a big problem. It was tearing me up, mine. It really was. Right. So how did um, NME come about? Did you eventually pluck up the courage to get in touch? Well, what, what happened with the NME was I um, I saw this job advertised in 96, which was for editor of NME.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a job that I suddenly knew had never existed before, but I suddenly knew I wanted it. And I knew it was my job. But I was, I was writing for the Birmingham Post. I was uh, signing on and I knew that I would, didn't have a chance to do it. I'd never, ever do it. And so um, it was, it was tantalising, but it was so out of reach, I would never do it. And so um, my band imploded. So I decided it was time to get out of Birmingham and it was time to go and go to, to London and, and make do the Dick Whittington thing and, and right. make my fortune. <laughs> and so, I, um, and obviously the, the smart thing would have been to write something for enemy and send it to them. That's the smart thing to do. And also the cheap thing to do, but actually the easy thing to do was to apply for a journalism course. And that's why I did apply for a journalism course and got on it. And, you know, and, and fortunately um, it was the journalism journalism course it's it's um the one at city university which is supposed to be the best one um and so i arrived there and um uh, and it was brilliant and there was loads of talented people and those people who were already making their way in the world and um i uh did something of uh you had to get work experience and so i i got work experience at um 
because <laughs> I didn't put very much effort into it. I got work experience at a place called Leisure Week, which is uh, the in-house magazine for the leisure industry. That's for leisure centres across uh, the UK. And um, uh, I went and we did a week there and it was the most nightmarish week of my life. It was so boring. Mm. Uh, what uh, did you be dating of it and that? I mean, it was literally things like a new le- leisure centre opens in Bay. Uh, Basingstoke it, it would be that kind of thing uh taking a press release and and re-nosing it uh it was just terrible and I've, at that point I was I was kind of two days into it I went right I've, I've now got to do something and stop you know just thinking yeah. that it's going to come to me and so um I uh, applied to the independent the broadsheet independent to do work experience Mm-hmm. Uh, and landed it on the travel desk and um in complete 180 of what I was normally like I just went in and just went I've got one week if I blow this then this is it if I, if I mess this up I am basically going to you know be writing for um the in-house publication for concrete or something like that you know it's not gonna happen and I didn't so, think there was anything worse than leisure week but you just <laughs> it there well, you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised. But you know, I did. I I, I thought I did well landing Leisure Week in terms of an example of what I didn't want to do. Yeah. And so um, I went to the Independent and uh, was working for Simon Calder, who's a brilliant journalist who's still still around now. She's for Crawley as well, is he not? He, I think he might be actually. The guy that's on the BBC now, hey, this is the travel in there. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So, you know, we Crawley people get everywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, basically it, the great thing was the travel desk was next to the arts desk. And so it was just like, I'm going to open your post, Simon, and then I'm going to go speak to the arts editor of the Independent. And literally within two days, I'd landed getting a commission. I'd, commi- I'd been commissioned to write a live review. Uh, and... Um, you know, I just gra- grabbed it with both hands, and then with it, so within kind of three or four weeks, I was writing live reviews, I was doing interviews, um, and, and really flying by the seat of my pants. But you know, really kind of this yeah. is it, this is it, I've done it. Um, but then, um, you know, there's a there's a kind of there's a old spring image joke about Orson Welles, and I'm not comparing, comparing myself to Orson Welles, but. Uh, this, this joke is that Orson Welles lived his life in reverse, starting with, you know, he basically ended up with whiskey ads and then worked his way back to mm-hmm. um, Citizen Kane. And I, I basically went from nothing to working on a broadsheet magazine, uh, broadsheet newspaper. And then um, my next uh, thing was I landed at Q. I managed to get work at Q magazine. Right. Which was which is uh, brilliant, and I'd walked walked into Q in kind of ninety seven, ninety eight, and I was the pretty much I was the indie boy, so I was doing all the indie stuff mm. um, as um, all the big stuff was going off. So I was doing you know things like um, I don't know placebo and uh, um, uh, Graham Cox and solo album and all that stuff and it was kind of picking mm-hmm. all right and I, I loved it absolutely loved it and then the job came up for enemy.com and I applied for it and uh, I was interviewed by 
um, I was interviewed by Steve Sutherland, who's the editor of Enemy, and he um, was had a fearsome reputation. And when I walked into his office, he was terrifying. He was absolutely petrifying. I mean, I could not, you know, this is like a, uh, a combination of meeting your hero and the end of level boss on a computer game. You know, this is it. This is this is it. And um, somehow I managed to get to that first interview um, by, you know, pointing out some of the shortcomings of enemy that week. And then um, I had a second round, a second interview where I was interviewed by 10 people. And I thought, I thought what had happened was they were really, really strict on interviewing and they really wanted to find the right person for enemy.com. Um, but what I discovered later was Steve had gone back and said, there's this guy who knows about the internet. You've got to see it. It's like mental. And it was like, so essentially I was like the exhibit. I was like, I was like at the zoo and there was all these people going, I can't believe this guy. Who is this guy? And that, um, and I, and I landed it. I, you know, I, I landed it. Um, I could not believe it. I'd done a year uh, um, as editor of a, of a website called Dot Music, and here I was at the NME in, in November '98. It was unbelievable. Um, and they gave me all uh, carte blanche to do whatever I wanted to do because nobody kind of, there were no rules. And that was, that was uh, the terrifying and brilliant thing about it. There was absolutely no rules. So, See how you said that the, the advert had come up in 96? Would that, yeah. would 96 be when NME.com started? That's right, yeah. Yeah, so the, um, so, uh, the first editor of NME.com was a guy called Brendan Fitzgerald, mm -hmm. who um, was the chief sub and a brilliant chief sub. And uh, he um, landed for a job of editor of NME.com. In fairness, being a very good sub, but not necessarily knowing about the internet, Mm -hmm. uh, and so he went off um, to work on something called Music 365 with Danny Kelly. Right. Uh, and so the job came up. And interestingly, actually, uh, the job of editor of Music 365 came up at the same time as NME.com, which I also interviewed for. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I was offered the NME job before Music 365. And so I, I took the enemy job but music 365 had kept me waiting for four weeks and so i might have gone to music 365 it'd been a bit quicker so mm. who, who knows things could have been different for me yeah Definitely. so what, what is um what's the difference between writing for enemy.com as opposed to writing for the magazine great uh, uh, i mean for me i think um I mean, I'd loved Enemy, but I knew when I went to Enemy.com, it, it needed to be quick. It needed to be fast. It needed to be about news. It needed to be talking about what had happened the day before or, you know, in the last hour. What, what it couldn't be is 2,000 words written over the course of a week mm -hmm. and then published in the magazine. And so that kind of speed was what it was all about. And so I, I really put a lot of time into making sure news was important. And then um, as technology came aboard, it was it became about or it became about music and it became about video. And so 
Um, I was really very pleased to do the UK's first webcast, which was Swayed Live in Japan mm-hmm. um, in 99. Um, and, you know, we, we, we put posters up around London about, about the fact we were going to put this, this thing, even though it was, it was you, most people still had dial-up and, you, you know, yeah. we were lucky to be able to see it over, you know, a, a one-inch screen. We, we, we were very much of the opinion that we should do it. Um, and so that was, that was really successful. And then we started doing more and more um, live uh, webcasts. And then uh, we were uh, doing interviews from, from Glastonbury and Reading. And um, this was way before the BBC had, you know, did big internet coverage. Mm. So we were leading the way. And it was, uh, you know, it was true that um, our music, music news was also leading the way. We were, we were really on it. So when um, Radiohead came back with the first stuff from Kid A, uh, we, well, I was there the night they played that new material and I was reviewing it and, and putting stuff up as, um, as I played. So I, I yeah. you know, they, they played a gig which took like two hours and I put up three reports in those two hours. Um, and, and that was amazing, you know, and, and response to that was, was fantastic. This is 2000, 2000 now. Mm-hmm. And so there was no Twitter, no Facebook, or anything like that. We were just updating news stories. Yeah, so essentially as well, then stuff like that would then appear in the magazine. Like maybe yeah, the following so, week, so you were kind of breaking the news and kind of bridging the gap from one week to the next. That's right. And look, I mean, I have to say we're really lucky because... Um, uh, the, the publisher, a guy called Robert Tame, had this philosophy. And I remember him taking me to one side and said, look, you've got to do this. You've got to put this stuff up. Because, <laughs> because it's better, because obviously there's loads of people snapping our heels, you know. Um, there's loads of internet publications like Music 365, which are ready to uh, take over. And Robert said, um, I'd much rather commit suicide than have somebody kill us. I mean, I don't know how much of a philosophy that is, but I mean, I, I, I understand what you're saying. He'd rather the enemy digitally was really important rather than somebody else becoming that thing. And so I had that carte blanche to do that. And also um, it, it meant that the, the paper became richer, I think, because we had, we had that combination of something that was going to happen online, which would carry you through to the next week's issue. Mm. So, I mean, don't get, I mean, I, I, I did like NME.com, but I was always kind of, I liked the physical copy of the magazine, um, partly because I brought, I collected them, I had bundles of them all in my room. So, yeah. as well as NME.com, you, you would have been writing stuff for the magazine as well, would you? Uh, well, that's right. So, um, that's, very much when I got in, I mean, it was, I mean, I was, I'm, it was unfortunate because it was 98, so it was a kind of tail end of Britpop and everything was feeling a bit yeah. slow and tired. And I think it was, you know, no disrespect, but, you know, Travis were the biggest thing happening mm-hmm. over here and um, new metal was the biggest thing happening in the in the world. Um, so that was a bit depressing to find, to arrive at enemy at the point and you're going, come on, let's do this. And you get there and it's, it's like, everybody's going, it's rubbish. It's all rubbish. Um, 
so I, I got there and uh, got the opportunity to write about things. And then having uh, editedenemy.com for a few years, the, the dot-com uh, bubble burst. And so we'd, we'd grown quite big. Uh, and then it was very much put on hold. And I was basically said, you know, somebody said to me, you can either carry on um, with fewer staff or you can become the edit. Uh, you can become the, re- the reviews editor of, of NME, mm-hmm. and you know I dreamt of being the reviews editor of NME. I loved NME.com, but being the reviews editor was was an itch I really had, and so I I, I got a chance to be to do that, and so I took I took it up, and um, it, and the timing was just unbelievable because it was just. Yeah. The, the strokes had just happened. The strokes had just played those gigs, um, you know, uh, in in Camden in front of like 150 people, and then a couple of days later, of London Astoria for for um, the the enemy shows, um, and so it was something in the air, mm-hmm. and the timing could not have been better. And so now I was running the reviews desk and. Um, just looking at this whole new uh, load of bands who were coming in, you know, from people like uh, the Aya Yes, and then the, not long after White Stripes and The Strokes, and uh, and then pretty soon us Brits got our shit together. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> you know, we we had people like uh, the Libertines coming in, and um, you know, I I saw look. I saw the Libertines, so they played an enemy show and um, I saw them uh, in Camden at the Barfly and I just thought they were just the just for great. Just like I hadn't seen a band. I'd seen a ton of bands. I'd seen so many bands you could not believe. Um, and then I saw this band, the Libertines, and they were so, so brilliant. And so I did something which on paper is mental. I basically took the next day off because they were playing in Bristol and I drove to Bristol to see the Libertines again, even yeah. though I was working for the enemy and anybody with any, with any brain would have said, just go and ask the editor to go and see them again. But no, I took the day off and I went and, went and saw them at, at the Louisiana in Bristol. But what and, was your um, thing behind that? Was that just kind of to see if it was... Um if it'd been a one-off or if it was the real thing? That's a good question. I mean, I think I, I, it, it was much more um, it was much more visceral than that. It was basically I'd seen this band and I had to see them again. Yeah. And uh, the easiest thing to do was just to say, I'm taking a day off, I'm going to go and see him. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you can imagine, when, when uh, the following day, I'm driving to Bristol, I'm just thinking, what if I know good? What if I was like a one-off? What if I, what if, what if I, what if I kind of okay? You know, well, you know, I mean, it, at least I get a day off, I suppose. Um, and so um, I went to Louisiana um, with my girlfriend and um, we had a nice meal beforehand. There you go. That was it. We went to Bristol. We had a nice meal. So if they were terrible, at least we had a nice meal. Yeah. Um, and they were better. <laughs> it was mad. They were better. They they did this thing 
where uh, basically this whole but the stage was in front of us and um, suddenly this whole noise went up behind us and it was the band. It was Pete, Carl, John and Gary. And they were dancing through the crowd to get to the stage and the crowd parted to let them through and they got on and they just kicked it off. And it was just immense and amazing. And I was thinking... This is this, how could this bed be better than the night before? It was better than the night before, and they, they were just brilliant. They were just brilliant. I completely lost it, I completely fell in love with them, and I knew they were great. And I knew that, um, that trip to Bristol would definitely been worth it. So, um, at that point, was no one else at NME aware of them? Yeah, so it was very. But James Oldham, who um, was aware of them, James Oldham, who was deputy editor at that time and very much been around the strokes, knew about them. Um, but it was still coming through uh, and it was kind of like, yeah, no, they're, they're interesting, but um, we'll see. And the interest, I mean, just to step back, I think there's a really interesting thing about Enemy, which I guess isn't obvious, which is that a lot of people think that the enemy have this kind of, you know, we draw up a band we like, and this is what we say, and it's kind of all closed, and mm. you know, we we've made we've decided. Natural fact, what the enemy is is a seething bed of people rowing about music constantly and just fighting to get your band to the top and get them on the cover or get them a feature because you know they're brilliant and everybody else is a bloody idiot. Mm. Um, and so, and so you know, it, they were one of those bands, I knew they were brilliant. I just knew they were brilliant. And um, uh, there was lot, plenty of people who didn't. I, I, you know, it went on for you know, not only months, but years afterwards and people just going, I don't get it. I just, just don't, I just don't get it. Yeah. But, you know, that was, for me, that was fine because it was painfully obvious that they were great. And not only were they great, but everybody who experienced them became converts. It was like, it was almost like a cult. It was just like... Yeah, I've got them know, tattooed to my arm. Well, ex- well, exactly, exactly. How many people have band tattooed on their arm? You just knew... They were so extraordinary and... Um, look, I mean, I'd, I'd grown up and my kind of Bible was uh, John Savage's English Dreaming, which is obviously about pit, the Sex Pistols mm-hmm. and also about the culture around the Sex Pistols and what a difference they'd made. And, I, you know, bear in mind, at this point, I'm probably uh, I'm probably about 30, so I'm a bit long in the tooth for an enemy journalist. And so I I'd, I'd kind of knew that I'd missed it all. And then this band came came on and they are, but you know, they're 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 not the pistols, but they but culturally they represent something as, as significant as the pistols. Yeah. And um everybody got swept up in their wake who who experienced them. I mean, and that's key because it's very easy to sit in office and go, well, you know, I'm not liking it as much as Fisher Spooner. Mm. Um, who I do like, though, but you know, it's a, that's another story for another day. But there, I mean, what the Labertines did was 
they were like the spearhead for a movement. Lots of bands came for them, for the Paddingtons, the others, bands like that. So there was tons and tons of stuff underneath. So do you think um, at that point, like you were saying, you were 30, you were long in the tooth, and then the Libertines came along, do you think that the Libertines would be the band that kind of define your journalistic career? Yes, absolutely. I kind of knew, I knew this was it. Um, I knew that they were really special, uh, you know, because of that Louisiana trip. But um, the thing that really cemented it was um, they were devote, they started to put on gorilla, uh, gorilla gigs and advertising on the internet. And um, they basically played the show at their flat, you know, which they called the Albion Rooms. Uh, and they advertised it. And, and you can imagine, for me, right, I'd, I'd done Enemy.com and I loved Enemy.com and I loved the internet. And there's this great band. And they're not only a very great band, they're putting stuff on the internet yeah. where you can go and see them. And it's just like, Christ, I couldn't, like, I couldn't invent this band. They're too perfect. You know, they're too good. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're brilliant and they're putting shows on the internet. And and I went and saw this show and they, and it was, it was, you know, there's photographs of it. You can see there's probably like 20, 25 of us in there, me looking very young. <laughs> um, and, but they were just brilliant. They were just brilliant. And the police came and to break it up. And when they heard there was police at the door, they started playing Guns of Brixton by The Clash. You know, when, when the police kicking your door, how are you going to come? Um, it's just, it was so, it was just amazing. And then um, I got a cab with Roger, Roger Sargent, who was taking pics that night mm-hmm. uh, into Camden because we were going to go and see somebody else. I don't know who it was. I can't, can't recall. But I just remember him and I just, bonding and just going we don't I don't think we know how good this band are we think they're good but we really don't realize how good they are and it was just like yeah we we were just like comrades in arms we had a common cause we knew that they were great but we kind of in that cab ride we realized that not only were very great but they were better than we could possibly imagine yeah which I think that's exactly what all the fan base were like as well and you kind of, you do get defensive about them because, yeah. I mean, yes. is, it, is it go further on? The, the media were, like the mainstream media were terrible the way they treated them. Um, yeah. But, uh, they, well, I mean, the, the mainstream and, and lots of music media, I mean, lots of music media kind of wrote them off and, and didn't get it. And that was one of the things that really, uh, annoyed me was there's this uh, there was this idea that all great music had already, already happened, and you know if you weren't around in the sixties or seventies or or the eighties, then you basically you'd missed it. And, you know it was tough luck. You know you didn't see you you've not seen great music, and that's a terrible and patronising attitude. Yeah, uh, not least of which because a lot of people didn't even get off their asses to go and see them. You know, they were playing gigs every night. It wasn't hard to go and see them. Yeah, and to go and see them and realise the connection that they had with their fans should have been enough to kind of, to prick MD's kind of imagination of what they were going to go and achieve. Yeah, I was like nothing I'd ever seen. It was literally like nothing I'd seen. But 
absolute devotion of people uh, to to it was unparalleled and you know to the degree I mean look I'd kind of you know because I loved them become the person right about the libertines of the NME and I was through suspicion because I was part of the problem in inverted commas but it's just like no no I love this band mm-hmm. um, absolutely adore this band but you know it, it did get mad later on it, you know Ending stuff ending up in the tabloids and everything, uh, and trying to keep um, a kind of perspective was difficult. Um, but but also you know very much having to make a decision about what was most important. But and for me it was always um, it was always the fans first, always yeah. the fans, um, and then the enemy second. And then the band third. And I think I always had to keep that, make sure that everything I, I was writing about and saying was through that filter. Um, and I, you know, it was, and it, I think it was, it was the right thing to do. I mean, the good thing was I was a music fan, so it was relatively easy for me to go fans first. Yeah. So at what point then, obviously you say you shared a taxi with Roger Sargent. At what point did you... See- Think we're going to write a book. Uh, well, it was a little bit of a leap. It was a bit later. I mean, Roger was like the man. He'd been there. I mean, I think it's important to note that most bands by this time weren't... Uh, it wasn't like the 70s. It wasn't like um, you, uh, photographers and journalists got to hang out with bands generally. Um, you know, it was kind of like you're in for half an hour interview and then you're out. Mm-hmm. But um, for me and for Roger, we were there uh, and we were watching it unfold because um, we chose to. And Roger took just took all, you know, Roger took all the great pictures, all of them. Yeah. Uh, and I was there, you know, as they were, um, you know, playing guerrilla gigs or breaking apart or, you know, Pete going to prison um and so you know I was there for all of it and not because I'd, I'd sat and gone you know I want to write the book but because it, it felt important yeah if and it felt important that uh we were there rather than it coming second or third hand um and then after kind of like 12 18 months of it you know Roger said to me uh Roger said look you have written about them, you know them, you've been there, and I've taken all the photographs. We should do it. We should do this book. We should do something about them. We should make sure it's preserved because other people will write things which are just not true. They will they will write the kind of, you know, grimy, awful yeah. story instead of a story which is which is the real one, which is about four people who came together to try and make make this great kind of music and make this great scene. Um, and, you know, he's right. He was completely right. And so I, I kind of started pulling it together and, and writing a, a, a brief, um, which I, I sent off to uh, an agent, and um, and they liked it. They, they thought they thought it was good and exciting, uh, 
and then it, it then went out for bidding um, to, you know, went out to a number of publishers. And um, in the end, two publishers got into a bidding war over it, which was just kind of weird and strange. Um, and then uh, it, it, it became the fact that um, it became obvious that for one of the people bidding got, got it much more and understood what we were trying to achieve. And what we were trying to achieve was a definitive kind of artifact, something which was um, the full story, but also the full imagery. Yeah. Because we had offers where it was kind of like, write the book and we'll put kind of 16 pictures in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, no, it's, it has to be the whole thing together. It has to be the words and the pictures. Uh, it has to be, you know, Roger's amazing imagery, and it has to be their amazing story together in one book and, and put together in a way where, where they complement each other. Um, and so we, we signed that deal because um, they, they they got it and they and they put an amazing designer on it as well. Uh, and it was. Um, it was kind of like fuck. We've got to actually do this. <laughs> it does look, <clears throat> it does look amazing. Like um, I got it the day just to have a look at it again to remind myself, and just like the kind of it's a different size for any book. It's kind of bigger, but no too big. And uh, the design, it's brilliant, and the pictures on each page and stuff like that. Is, uh, everything about it's amazing. It's probably one of the best books I've ever owned, um, and I don't say that lightly. That, um, that means a lot. It really, it really does mean a lot. Thank you. I mean, there is a lot of, as you said, there, there is other people writing about them, I and I have read uh, a few other books. I've, I've read um, Pete's mum's book, obviously, I've read the, the Pete Welsh one. Um, Which is very good, by the way. Yeah, that's a good one. But you could, you could tell at the time, if you went into, like, kind of, no so much Waterstones, but see, like, the cheaper bookstores, and there was there was tons of Pete Doherty books, and you're like, like, that's his Pete's biography, and you could tell just with the front cover that it was going to be shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a really... I remember when... Um, uh, myself, Roger, and our designer met, and it was one of the weirdest things. It was in a pub called the Alma in uh, Stone Newton in North London. And um, we were all really nervous. And I know, and I was basically, I was really worried that they, this designer was going to come and do all the hoary old punk cliches and want to do, you know, ripped up kind of um, uh, newspaper text and stuff like that. And uh, over over like, within ten minutes, we basically had this conversation where he had basically was really worried that this photographer and this writer guy were going to want to do this kind of punk, all these punk cliches and design. It was just like, no, no, we completely agree. We want to make it look great. We want to mm-hmm. make it look as good as possible. And it was a huge sigh of relief. And uh, then we got around drinks in, which is which is great. <laughs> Um, obviously, so you, you had this relationship with Roger Sargent, and what what sort of relationship did you have with the band? Obviously, really, I mean, really close. I mean, um, I mean, I, as I said, I mean, I've been there most of the times that something had happened, 
you know, uh, whether it was, you know, guerrilla gigs or, you know, the last gig Pete played before he went off into rehab in, in, um, uh, in, in Asia. Um, and I interviewed them both several times and, um, we had, we had a kind of trust, I think. I mean, I think, yeah. um, I kind of knew I wasn't going to, going to, um, sell them down the river but then they also knew that I would also print the truth. I know I was kind of like, like I'd said before, going back to, it was all about fans and that, making sure fans knew um, what, what was actually going on. So I, I became quite close to Pete and Carl in particular and Gary and, and John to a lesser degree. I mean, John's a, very much his own quiet, person. He is, he is quiet. Yeah. Um, and I think that, I, I the, the other thing is that I you know with with um uh particularly with Pete was that I think Pete had been had, had become used to kind of interviews who'd, who'd done their research on Wikipedia and being able to kind of uh, mm-hmm. handle them whereas I kind of knew the story and was would be able to challenge him a bit more and I think he liked that actually being able to um actually crossing swords with somebody who actually knew and had been there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when we came around to do the book, I was very fortunate in the sense that um, it was not an official book and would never be an official book, but, but everybody was uh, happy to be interviewed. Right. And so I, I had the best of both worlds, which was basically, I didn't, you know, didn't none of my copy was approved by a band. I just wrote it. Um, mm-hmm. But also I could interview everybody as well. Right, because that was going to be kind of leading into that as to what their opinions were on you writing the book. So they were, they were perfectly happy for, for this to go ahead. Um, yeah, yeah. Look, and I and I think there's probably bits in there which, which people won't like. You know, Pete, Carl, John, Gary won't be a hundred percent behind. But um, I knew I was going to uh, write it, and I knew I knew it better than anybody else. So it was yeah. it was fine. So, I mean, Pete, because I've, I've spoke to, I've had Mark Beaumont on, um, and I've had another couple of people that have kind of had dealings with Pete, and I think that the kind of general consensus is that it's, it can be hard to nail him down in an interview, and kind of, <laughs> so would you say he was better behaved for yourself, or worse? I think generally better behaved. I was, yeah, I think generally, yeah, mm. not on his best behavior because that would be for be seen, but um, generally better behaved. I mean, look, I, re- I remember a lovely occasion when uh, I was interviewing at the back of Rhythm Factory, right? I'd, I'd, it was, I think, and I may be conflating stuff, but let me go with it. I think I'd, I'd spent the day with them. They were recording the second album. I'd gone into the studio at 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've gone into the studio at 10 a.m. and uh, you know, walking in, and um, guy from Rough Trade, James Endicott, who's a brilliant guy, um, had introduced me to Mick Jones from The Clash, which is just like mental, but you know, you go with it. Um, uh, and then um, uh, they, they were recording tracks from the second album, and then later on, uh, they went on stage. 
and did um, Another Girl, Another Planet with um, what's your fella? Yeah. Um, the only ones. Peter Thank you, Peter Perrett, because Peter yeah. Perrett was there, uh, which is another story I need to tell you another time. But Peter Perrett was there, um, and it was just a glorious day from 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. was just like every every rock writer's dream, as you can imagine. You're in the studio, they're recording an album, it sounds great. Everybody thinks they're going to implode, but the album sounds great, or bits of it I'm hearing anyway. And then um, afterwards, I'm trying to interview him, and it's just too loud in the back room of a rhythm factory. And so Pete says, look, I tell you, it's too loud. Let's just go out, and then you can interview me. And um, he and I left the rhythm factory, and he got on a, on a, on a bike with the guitar and he's playing he he's riding no-handed and playing a guitar and singing songs and it's just like christ this is like it's 2000 and bloody five ford and i don't and obviously video phones haven't been invented so i've missed this whole thing everybody should see this it was like one of the great great moments it was, it was brilliant. And, you know, so he really he indulged me. And so, you know, we did the interview and we did it away from the Rhythm Factory and it, and it was good. It was a good interview. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the, that's a moment where I really wish I'd had an iPhone. But unfortunately, yeah. I didn't get one for another, you know, seven or eight years. Obviously, there have been so many big moments within the Labertine's career that you've had the pleasure of being around at the time, like obviously Pete getting out of prison, um, stuff like um, the recording of the second album, things like that. So what what would stand out as like the biggest moment for you? Would it be that Pete getting out of prison? That was a brilliant kind of reunion story. Oh, oh was that? Yeah. I mean, that that's the one. I mean, it, it's so... I mean, to try and be dispassionate and stand outside of it, you couldn't, nobody could have invented that. I mean, it's too perfect. I mean, Pete robbed Carl. Pete robbed Carl's flat and goes to prison for it. And, um, you know, that, you know, it, it's kind of all over. The band's all over. It's finished. I mean, it's obviously finished. Um, and then the guy called Dean, who must have been like 19 at the time. Is that Dean, lives, Dean Fragile? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He, he, um, he's taught, he's uh, communicating with Pete and he lives in Chatham and he basically says, can I put on a freedom gig? And Pete says, yes. Like he's 19. Do you know, to go back to what I was saying before, when I was 19, I was terrified of writing and sending something to the enemy. Dean Fragile is setting up gigs with Pete Doherty. And he sets up this gig and it uh and it's in Cham and everyone's there. They're yeah. all there. And I'm there interviewing Pete and I'm interviewing Pete and Carl. And it's just like, have you got any plans for tonight? And it's kind of like, well, you have to look, you have to see what happens. And they they play all four of them are back on stage. They play together. You know, everything is put to one side. All it's, the issues, you know, play. it's the end of a film, you know, mine. It's kind of like, this is how it all ends. And then the, the titles go up as, a, as they're reunited playing this unbelievable gig. Mm. 
was this because um, I listened to a podcast last week um, I don't know if you've heard it Boys in the Band podcast and it was they have like a kind of they have people for bands on every week kind of these Cooper Temple Claws and blah 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 so it was the guy for Black Wire right and I'm pretty sure he was talking I'm pretty sure it was his gig and um then the, the Labertines obviously Pete got out and they weren't meant to play the gig and then they appeared and Blackwire had to go in first. Is this right? It's um it's not black I'm trying to remember, sorry, this is a terrible thing to say. It's not Blackwire, right. it's another band whose equipment they borrowed, if memory serves. Right. But yeah, you are you are right. It wasn't it was they yeah. they, they basically steamrolled somebody yeah. else's gig. Yeah, it was meant to be, it was going to be Pete and then it was going to be Pete and Carol and then all of a sudden the full band was there. So, I mean, stuff like that, that's like legendary. It's an unbelievable night. It's absolutely incredible. And just, and and to go back to something I was saying about the enemy earlier, mm-hmm. is what you would imagine is the whole of the enemy office would have been there, but there was like three of us. And it's just like, yeah. You know, this is not only is this the great band reforming, this is also a great band who who are doing something extraordinary and one off and once in a lifetime. You would have imagined everybody would have been there. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was that was really peculiar. Um, but I mean, what a great, I mean, just an unbelievable night. I did the interview, which is also terrifying because I thought I wasn't going to get the interview. Um but I, I got it. Roger got the photo, which went on the cover, and then another photo, which became the cover of the second Libertines album, mm-hmm. and I'm and also the cover of, of the book Bound Together. Um, I stood next to Roger as that photo was being being taken, which is uh, amazing because the photo is like it's kind of weird. Pete and Carl look like they're in a bubble. It's kind of like. Yeah. weird kind of thing where they're on their own I and mean, it looks like two people who are completely in their own world and can take on the rest of the world mm-hmm. um and it's something almost um weirdly quiet about that even though um you've, you've got a car looking very defensive and pete showing yeah. a tattoo and um and it's a brilliant photo. And as I say, it's kind of moment captures like real tranquility. But what was actually happening was Roger was taking that photo and Roger was shouting at them both. And Roger was telling them they needed to move. I mean, telling them to show the arm. And so you've got this weird, for me, I've got this weird dichotomy where I know that Roger was working his arse off to get those pictures and get those pictures brilliantly. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the pictures came out just look like it incredible serene moment in time <laughs> it was extraordinary and I'm, lu- I'm very lucky to have been there i'm very very lucky and then um i then got a cab back that night uh, to write the cover to write the story to write the cover interview mm-hmm. for, for the enemy and um uh you know enemy stumped up to pay for a cab which was like 80 quid which was unheard of they would actually pay 80 quid um and so I, I got back about f- to the enemy office at four in the morning and I filed my copy, I think at about, about eight o'clock. Um and it was and it was you know, 
it was a great experience. It, I mean, obviously it was stressful, but it was a, it was a really good experience filing that and just knowing that I'd captured a, what I thought was a, a, a moment in music history. Yeah, oh, it definitely was. It's defining um, for myself and many others. Um, obviously, you then had, the, the next albums come out and then you've kind of had to watch the band kind of fall apart. Obviously, being so close, I mean, I know how I felt and I'm just kind of a fan, kind of 400 miles away from all this, but you are kind of right there in the epicentre. So how kind of upsetting was that? And obviously you still need to kind of keep your journalist head on as well. So, Well, it was, it was, it was, look, it was, I mean, that kind of period where, you know, they got back together, which is amazing. And then they, they played a whole load of gigs. They played like gigs in Hyde Park where they played on the, on the island, which unfortunately I didn't go to, but got and played in kebab house and they played lots of shows at the rhythm factory and they played um an amazing show at duke of clarence where um the original libertines with mr raz cox on drums played and then the um and then baby shambles and then uh the libertines played i mean just unbelievable shows and it all felt really good and then um, and then, I, as I mentioned, I've, I've been into recording and that had felt good. And then just cracks began to show and it was just kind of, it was just really, it was just really, it really was depressing. I kind of, yeah. for every everybody involved, you know, for the band, definitely for me. And, you know, people, people like, um, you know, everyone at Rough Trade, uh, I mean, to be fair, Rough Trade and I think Mick Jones, in fairness, kept it together, you know, quite and got it done. No, whenever he thought it wasn't going to get done, and it did get done. Um, and you know, they they played the brilliant show f- uh, uh, for Jonathan Ross, which is which is a great. But it's yeah, got one of the great gestures when they, they played "Can't Stand Me Now." And they bang their guitars together in this cross, and it just looked so cool, and it felt like they were unstoppable. Um, that was a great show, that. Um, and Amy Winehouse was on that show as well. Um, and so it just felt they had so much momentum, but it felt like it couldn't be stopped. And then, but it just began to fall apart, and um, you know. We end up with a. They, they play a show in um, in Club Infinity where uh, Carl had his uh, a club, and um, they played seven songs. And they ended with good old days, which is just like you know, come on guys, you it's just like you know, if you're going to do the one that really breaks every heart, you know which yeah. one you're going to do, and they do it, and that's it. And then Pete flies off, and then that's it. You know, it just falls apart. It was, it was so sad. It was just, and like, I kind of, at that point, I knew that my time at Enemy was coming to an end mm-hmm. because there was never going to be a band like Libertines for me in the Enemy. You know, I couldn't sit there and go, you know, whatever band coming in 
this week is and get excited about them. I'd, I'd invested so much emotionally into them um, that I just knew it was it was time to start looking elsewhere. Um, and and I think it was you know it was just such a shame because I I kind of thought their third album, you know, if I'd carried on would have been you know the London Calling of of that yeah. generation. It would have been big everywhere in the whole world. Yeah. So yeah, it was a yeah, it was just terrifically sad. The thing is with that as well, kind of, I know what I'm like as a music fan, and see if the band you love gets too big that everybody likes them, you end up hating them. So, I mean, that's one of the good things about the Libertines is that it got to a level, obviously for the fans. I mean, for their career, they they should have went higher, but for us as fans, no everybody likes them, so that's a good thing in my book. I think uh, I mean, that's really interesting because they, um, you know, speaking dispassionately, speaking as a journalist, speaking as somebody who writes stories, they're perfect in that sense because they split up after two albums and they're two great albums and they did a load of shows and, you know, everybody saw them in the, that kind of brief period knew how amazing they were and yeah. talk about it now. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, from a, from a kind of history point of view, you know, it was, it was perfect. Yeah. I mean, because I, mean, I spent... Like after that, Pete was in the tabloids constantly, and I've spent, I must have spent a good couple of years just arguing with people at work, and because every day had an opinion about Pete Doherty, every day, and it was always a bad opinion, and I, I just felt like I was just having to defend him all the time, and it gets tiresome doing that, doesn't it? It so, does. What What is your relationship like now with the band do you have any contact with them now so for la- I, I see carl probably every f- kind of three or four months um the last time i saw pete was at um carl's 40th birthday right. in margate which was which is a, a brilliant night which is yeah. a really good night and um it it, it was excellent because they both looked good and they were both great mates and you could kind of tell that it was carrying on. Yeah. Uh, and this is before the, um, the Margate hotel was open. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a brilliant night it was a, it, and Pete was on great form. I, I do love seeing Pete. Uh, I do love ca- just chatting to him. Yeah. Um, I do see Carl more often, as we said, I don't see John so much. Because he, uh, because he lives in Sweden, mm-hmm. uh, I do see Gary quite a lot because he lives on my road, which is quite mad. And right. um, uh, I've lived, I've lived in this house now for uh, about nine years, and Gary moved onto my street about five years ago, mm-hmm. and we had no idea it was going to happen. And then we end, we we end up being neighbours, which is which is a bit stellar street, but quite nice. He's I'm great. pretty sure something like that happened um, a similar sort of story with the Holloways. I'm sure there was two of them kind of, that's how they met, because they were in the same street, something like that. Um, just 
Uh, one question that I for, kind of forgot to ask. Um, what, I've always been fascinated with Pete and Carol's relationship and I've kind of, I looked at my own, own relationship with my best pal because we were both Libertines fans and I always thought of myself as Pete and he was Carol because he seemed to kind of, when we got into a nick, when we got drunk or whatever, he was the one that would look after me and shout at me and get me hair and things like that. So I always kind of, I don't know if I romanticised that, but what did you think of that relationship? Because it's, it's one of the most genuine relationships I've ever seen. I think so. I mean, I think, um, I mean, they, they kind of saw in each other stuff that they didn't have and they kind of um, complemented each other and drove each other on mm. and, um, and you know, continue to do so. But I, I think it was that combination, you know, the, the weird thing about rock and roll and, that, and I can't quite understand it is that there's actually far fewer kind of, you know, duos in rock than you'd imagine there would be. There's, there's kind of Pete and Carl, and then there's Strummer and Jones, which obviously, if anything, is probably the, the closest comparison. And then you've got, uh, you know, Jagger and Richards, and you've got um, Lennon and McCartney. But the thing they all have in common is that they all um, brought something to the pie, which everyone didn't have. I think, and I yeah. think that's that's definitely true of Pete and Carl. And I think, um, you know, I think, look, I mean, I, rather like yourself, I have unbelievable mates, and I've kind of always thought that together we could do stuff which on our own we we couldn't. Yeah, and I think that's that's definitely a case of Pete, Pete and Carl. And, and weirdly, look, it's the same with me and Roger. It's just, just like I. I couldn't have, that book wouldn't have been a quarter of a book it is without Roger. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I'm sure when you speak to Roger, he will say yeah. <laughs> that book wouldn't, wouldn't be nearly as good without Anthony. <laughs> Maybe, I hope so, cross fingers. The final kind of word on the book, obviously, um, Pete, what he said about you um, for the back cover. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Anthony Thornton is... Uh, better than Leicester Bangs. So what sort of accolade is that? Are you happy That's, with that? Um, uh, well, am I happy with it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a music tennis in the world which wouldn't be happy with that. Um, y- yeah, I mean, look, that, that was just, uh, incredible. I mean, I'm, he, he said it, I, uh, and we were talking about, we did, a, we did an amazing thing at NME where we did a split cover of Pete and Carl and we did an interview mm-hmm. with Pete and an interview with Carl and it was as they were breaking up and it was for me it's one of the high points of the enemy yeah um because we we it was for music fans anyway at that point it was the most important thing in everyone's world was to get Pete's view and to get Carl's view and then to have them um, to have a split cover which it, wasn't my idea I have to you know it really really wasn't my idea but um that was that was just brilliant and it was it was when I was interviewing Pete for that that cover that he said it and it was just like (laughs) that's just a a 
probably the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. So I'll definitely take it. But Lester Bangs is pretty special. Do you know what I mean? I think, in fairness, while I love Pete dearly, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put on my CV. I'm a better writer than Lester Bangs. <laughs> so obviously, book's done, and you said NME was coming to an end. So what have you been doing since then? It's so for me. I mean, I. It was very, as I said, the, the writing was very much on the wall when the Libertines came to and I felt that with a book done, I'd done the kind of wanting to write something big and important about it, something which was culturally significant. Um, and then I, I'd had a couple of offers since for writing books, um, but they didn't feel right because I wasn't there. So, I, you know, I, got, I, I was offered a... Uh, writing a Stone Roses book, which would have been great. Don't get me wrong, it would have, would have been great. But I wasn't there in, you know, 88, 89. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't feel right. Um, and so I I um, had a choice uh, to either look at uh, going back into digital and the internet or to, um, you know, go the mojo and uncut route. Uh, which are both magazines I have an awful lot of respect for, but it just felt like digital was was more exciting, and so I go. So ever since then, I've been looking at digital magazines, and I worked for, for the British Film Institute for um, three years, which is brilliant. The British Film Institute really um, just at the forefront of film, but really needed help digitally. I was really happy to be able to do that and so since then it, as I say it's very much been a, about um, doing digital work so c- currently I work for as a for global content director for um, uh, a company looking doing concierge so that's kind of tra- lots of travel and mm-hmm. things like that which is, which is great it's not music I'm very much of a, of a view that music is a young man's game a young person's game to be correct um and i think i was very lucky to to have been there at a really important time um i mean i I was lucky because i caught a little bit of the arctic monkeys Mm -hmm. i was there when the arctic monkeys came through and you know just and it was kind of a weird thing about arctic monkeys was everything i said was going to happen kind of happened with the arctic monkeys in the sense that um uh, on the for, on the on, bizarrely on the Libertines forums, yeah, everybody knew about the Arctic Monkeys before anybody in the outside world knew about them. So everybody knew knew the song because there's that amazing set of demos mm-hmm. which got uploaded, uh, and they all knew. Everybody knew them. Everybody knew the lyrics. And so when um, they were kind of breaking it through, and I remember seeing them at, in the Islington Academy. Mm-hmm. And everybody knew knew it, and I think we'd written about them, the enemy, but we hadn't, you know, we we hadn't done this thing where we went, "Hey, world, there's this great new band you should hear about." Mm-hmm. It was kind of like, "Hey, world, you probably download them already, but we're now we're <laughs> going to talk about them." Yeah, because I I heard um, Conor McNicholas, I think he said um, the Arctic Monkeys were kind of like the death of NME because. The fans had heard them before the magazine were able to review them. When he when he went to review them, the fans were already singing the songs, something along the lines. Um, my friend, see my 
my Libertines friend, Pete and Carroll, um, he came away with a statement, I think it's the most ridiculous statement ever at the time when Arctic Monkeys came out. He said he was batting the cooks because the cooks came out around about the same time and he said it was going to be like the new blurring oasis north and south. And I thought, you're talking absolute bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just kind of, I liked Arctic Monkeys for then on and he's still a Cooks fan. And that's how we don't get it as much now. Well, that's a shame because he backed the wrong horse because they yeah. were clearly much better than Cooks from the outset. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, look, the singles are good, but for me... A certain romance on that first album is is a record as a song that basically says, "This isn't just an okay band. This is a really great band." Yeah. And I was kind of like hammering that to people, saying, "You've got to listen to this because this is like um, it, that's entertainment by the jam, but modernized and just so on it." And I mean, it's such a great tune. It's yeah. such a great tune. Um, well, that's just a hang and, and has lyrics kind of still stand up now, like five albums down the line, he's still kind of coming away with great lyrics. They're incredible. I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but, you, but there was The Guardian actually wrote a piece saying he couldn't have written those lyrics. Do you remember this? When, it, <laughs> when they came out, he wrote, they wrote a piece saying he's too young, he can't have written them, somebody else must have written them. I mean... Yeah, that's just like, so cheeky, and it? it's no kind of. It's really, really condescending, and also kind of like unless you've been to in inverted commas, unless you've been to, you know, university in Oxford or Cambridge, how could you dare write lyrics as good as this? It's madness. But the only reason you can write those lyrics is because you've seen those things happening, you've lived that life. Definitely. So, obviously, the podcast is good. Time for heroes. Uh, and I asked all my guests to pick four heroes to come for a dinner party. Gemma Clark, obviously, she was on the last one. She she ended up picking about um, 15 different heroes. I couldn't, get her, I couldn't shut her up. I say four heroes, but if you want to go over the threshold, that's that's fine as long as you've got a big enough table to sit them all in. Uh, I'm quite happy to sit them in the garden if necessary. Yeah. So, but I, look, I mean, this, this is a hard one. And I've thought about this quite a lot, um, but I, I thought I'd, I'd mi- I really wanted to mix it up. Um, so I think first of all I was thinking about Dorothy Parker, you know, the great kind of New York wit and writer. She's just brilliant, and anybody's ever written a word uh, should look at Dorothy Parker. I'm mean, just extraordinary talent, and also um, just somebody to keep everybody else in place. I think. Right. Uh, so, which is which is really important, I think, for, so, a, good, for a good dinner party. Mm. So, what did what did Dorothy Parker do? I've, I've no idea. So she she was a, a, just a, a, a brilliant wit and writer uh, in the nineteen twenties. She she had a uh, she she had a round table of writers, but she was she was definitely uh, the number one, mm-hmm. uh, and just. Just a real inspiration. If anybody's wanted a great turn of phrase, Dorothy Parker is the one. Okay. And then I think I am going to go over. I'm going to warn you. Sorry in advance. <laughs> um, then um, 
really, I'm, I'm, look, this is personal. I, I really would like Egon Schiele, the painter, mm-hmm. to be there because he's just an amazing, just amazing painter and uh, just such skill. And I really want to find out how he does it because he has such economy. And I really, he, he, he paints a view of uh, humankind, which is, which is simultaneously beautiful and ugly. Uh, which which is just just great, um, and I, I just want to find out more what makes him tick, which which actually brings me on to my next guest, my next guest, um, which is uh, Richie from Max Street Preachers. Oh, I mean, just a brilliant mind, um, and just one of those people who, for me, like I was born in Wales. But moved around but Richie, Richie is kind of the the person who you know uh, an autodidact he made himself he read himself into being which is something I you know just stands as uh just a, a complete inspiration for me um and you know also I just want to know what he's been doing and how he's thinking you know yeah um then uh, Nina Simone, then, is mm-hmm. just brilliant uh, songwriter, brilliant pianist, uh, should have been a, a concert pianist, should have been a classical concert pianist, but because of racism, wasn't given the opportunity. But just a, just fiercely brilliant. And just any, any you know, uh, her her own songbook is brilliant but every time she takes on something else she brings breathes new life into it so mm-hmm. i've been listening to her version of um george harrison's isn't it a pity which is just phenomenal yeah just I've, just that is a brilliant song i've got a spotify and, playlist of just people covering the beatles and all kind of those ones are they're the best yeah I, yeah, I, that's great. I really like Ray, Ray, Ray Charles doing Eleanor Rigby as well. It's just mm-hmm. great. Uh, I mean, um, I really like Miles Davis to come in just because he's amazing. Um, this is going to be quite, quite a, a contentious place, I think. And then um, James Baldwin, the writer, just because uh-huh. he's a brilliant intellect Great writer. Another country is just, just one of my favourite books ever. Uh, I have two more if if you'll indulge me. Yeah. Um, Arthur Lee of Love, mm-hmm. um, who uh, is the the guy who who made my my favourite album ever. I absolutely uh, forever changes is is still, um, you know, thirty years on my favourite ever record. I was very, very lucky to meet him once. Um, and he was an absolute gentleman uh, and, and brilliant person. And I was also lucky enough to, when I was at the enemy, to recommend him for a, an award, which we, we gave to him. Right. Um, and that was a, a real dream to come true. He's like, that record's just extraordinary. Yeah. And, you know, what a life. I mean, what an unbelievable life. And and then finally, because I think you should always have a bit of style. Uh, I think you should always have um, somebody you can bring something else to it. Jane Birkin, I think would be would be good to have as well. Right. Um, 
she made great records with Serge Gainsbourg, but uh, I've seen her live. She's she's absolutely incredible. Just a great performer, mm-hmm. um, and you know, just so stylish. So that that would be my dinner party. That's that's class as well. I mean, not one of them's been picked by anyone else. That's like top dollar. Uh, so no. you've you've doubled the amount of people I think there that you were allowed, but I'll let you off with that. Uh, so oh, you cooking them? I've got I've got a big cook? garden. It's all right. Yeah, yeah, oh, good, what am I good, cooking? Good question. Yeah. So, look, I, th- I think the conversation is going to be flowing pretty well. So I think the important thing is to make sure I've got good wine mm-hmm. around and anything else that, that people want uh, on that front. And then I think in terms of cooking, look, I do I do a pretty good pizza. And when, by, by pretty good, what I mean is for the last 10 years of my life, I've been obsessed with making the best pizza I possibly can. So I'd, I'd chance it and I'd actually get my pizza oven out and make pizza for everyone. And uh, it, it would be, you know, I think, I'd, I think it'd be okay. I think it'd be okay. But, let, you know, it's been 10 years in the making, so hopefully it'd be good enough to, to uh, <laughs> uh, keep uh, Ian Simone happy. Maybe not, but, you know, I, promise, I hope so. Sounds amazing. Uh, so that's us at the end. Um, thanks very much for coming on my podcast. You've been an absolute pleasure to interview. That's been um, great. Thank you. And we'll end it there. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes Podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes Podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes Pod at gmail.com. You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google, and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy.